Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturgis. Two weeks ago, I talked to you from Exodus 33 from the statement, Show me, Lord, show me your glory. And why, and here's the takeaway from that. It's online, you can listen to the teaching. But Lord, it was February 3rd. As a matter of fact, it was Roger Dixon's last requested uh, set of notes. Lord, show me your glory. And in that, we learn it's, it's the moment where Moses is talking to God, and God is frustrated with the people of Israel that he's just recently delivered from 400 years of bondage in Egypt, and they've come right straight out to, uh, to a mountain where God called them to worship him, and instead they make a golden calf, and they eat, drink, and rise up to play in worshiping in a manner that had been imprinted on them from the culture God was trying to remove them from. Okay, that's an important notion. And so they get out there and God talks to Moses and he says, those people of yours, and we laughed at that because they were God's people and God claimed them. He says, these are my people, a people unto me. I'm bringing you out, up, and into a place of promise. But when they did that, God says that they're your people, not mine. I don't even think I know them. And I'm not going to go with them because if I did, I was going to kill them. I'm going to kill them. And Moses fires back in the face of God. And again, somewhat a passage of complexity where he says, you can't do that. That's not who you are. And if you do that, here's, what, here's what's going to go on. And they go back and forth on it. Go home and read it. It's a, it's a fascinating passage of scripture. Read the entire chapter. But in verse 18, in sort of non sequitur fashion, it wasn't part of the, it didn't fit the conversation. God is going back and forth with Moses, Moses back and forth with God, and he's saying all this stuff. And finally, it's like, <sighs> show me your glory. And what we took away from that passage is there are moments that life will only make sense by reason of encounter and experience. And it makes sense at the level of the soul, not the mind. And that is God's presence trumps everything else. Because he said, God, I just came off the mountain with you, and the God I saw and felt and experienced there is not the God I'm talking to. I don't understand your plans. And God doesn't even interrupt him after he says, show me your glory. It's not like he says, wait a minute, brother, we got a conversation to finish here. He joins him in his own, in in his interruption, and he said, I'm going to do that. And then what the takeaway from that, we learn the first words, uh, all from a much quoted verse from Romans chapter 9. But he says, when I pass in front of you, here's what you're going to discover, but more than anything else, that I'm good. I'm good. And then he says, I'll have mercy upon whom I have mercy, compassion upon whom I have compassion. An oft-quoted verse of Scripture in many theological circles that don't bother to go back and read Exodus 33. But the first thing you'll know, when life around you doesn't make sense, and please listen to me, even when God's response that you see doesn't make sense, there's only one thing that will leap over those theories, and that's an encounter and an experience with God. Only one thing leaps over that to bring that point of peace that our mind cannot reconcile. And I said so many times to everyone here that a person with an experience and encounter will never be at the mercy of those who have a theory. So you're just fully equipped to walk into the face of the world when people say, but what about this in your faith and what, but what about that? And uh, as I taught some weeks ago in our morning devotionals, John 9, the blind man, offers the consummate answer. And by the way, he will be celebrated in the musical and in the, in the production on Easter. But he says, I, I can't answer your theological questions. I, I don't understand. All I know is that from the time I was born, I was blind, and now I see. That's the only answer. And when you have that on your lips, you'll never be at the mercy of all the complexities that life will bring. Go ahead and say amen right there. 
okay? Um, now, so look at the person and say, a testimony is never at the mercy of a theory. Go ahead and tell that person on each side. A testimony will never be at the mercy of a theory, okay? Now, uh, last week, uh, I presented a song to you that I had only written a couple days before last Sunday, and it left us with this sense of mystery and complexity because as I watched the effect on us, and, and listen, I'm not going to sing the whole song for you, but I want to, uh, I want to share with you just a, a piece of it so we can sort of revisit it. And what came as a result of that, I think, was, was sort of the stunned reality. Um, and listen to the words. Mary Magdalene will sing this in the musical in the night after Jesus is betrayed, reflecting on all the problematic realities. And she says, I've run out of hope. I can't see tomorrow. The sun coming up only promises sorrow. I must wait on you, Lord, and stand still. What I thought wouldn't last has become my forever. I see no other chance. I've accepted the never. I will wait on you, Lord, and stand still. The second verse says, this is not what I'd hoped, but it's what I've been handed. Not where I thought I'd be, but here I am standing. I'll try to wait on you, Lord, and stand still. I've read the words that you said, now I have to believe them. My next step must be faith, but that's not what I'm seeing. I will wait on you, Lord, and stand still. And the chorus says, so I will say to my soul, do not be shaken. can wait on you, Lord, and just stand still. I sang that at the close, and it really, I had not calculated the sort of quantified effect here. It hit us like it had me the several times when I was re-singing the lyric. What do we do when we face those moments in life? We have to wait on the Lord and stand still. Psalm 62 says, speak to your soul. Say to my soul, be silent. There are sometimes we need to close our mouth in the presence of the Lord and just stand still. There's not a person here who cannot testify, who won't admit to walking through that. Now, so I'm going to have to reduce what I had presented because I've taken too much time here sort of family visiting and sort of catching everybody up. Because today's message is two titles. It can be The Cynic's Guide to Faith and Life. I'll say that again so it'll sink in because it doesn't fit the... There's clearly a psycho-emotional departure from the weight of the consideration that we're still sort of mulling over in that song. The Cynic's Guide to Faith in Life or Tom's Five Guiding Rules for Surviving. And, And the reason I said it is because they are most often quoted by me. One of these five on a daily basis, I am... I, I would not think as an exaggeration, 
if not more of them. And I've never thought to, to, to gather them in one place. And I was reflecting. I had something else prepared. I was going to continue talking about the glory of the Lord and why the glory of that is the presence of God is so important and why God says, uh, I want you to give me the glory. I want to be glorified in you. If God doesn't have a need for that, I, I may get to talk about that next week because it, I think it's a good reflection. But I laughed out loud. And here's another thing I've never done. I've never done a study or taught a study on the book of Ecclesiastes. I, I think I may. But I went back and I was reminded of the number of times that the writer, presumably Solomon, King Solomon, wealthiest and wisest man, uh, prior certainly to uh, out, outlasted only by Jesus Christ and wisdom, but uh, the, the entire 12 chapters, 20, somewhere between 25 and 28 times, he uses the phrase under the sun. Everybody say under the sun. Let me just give you a quick sampling, okay? I'm going to start because I can't read. I have them all listed, but I don't have time to, uh, to, to list them to you, for, for you. But he starts with this, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. Now, remember I said what this is. It can be the cynic's guide to life and faith or the skeptic's guide to life and faith. What did, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? It's a theoretical question. What, what's the outcome of all this we do? Because under the sun means everything you would consider on the face of the earth, which we all, face of the earth, which we all know and see to be obvious by its existence. Okay, so that's what under the sun, under the sun means. But he says it. Chapter 1, verse 9. That which is, excuse me, that which has been is that which will be. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. Okay, you got this guy singing. Whatever will be, will be. You heard it in the song. What I thought wouldn't last has become my forever. I've, I'm standing in something I see no second chance, and I've accepted the never. Okay, what do we do at those moments? And that which has been done is that which will be done. So here it comes, often quoted, there's nothing new under the sun. See, that's one of them that, guide, that, that, that just guides me, okay? Uh, here, oh, see, I need time to talk about each of these at length. I can't. Let's go on. Chapter 1, verse 14. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. This is from a guy who had it all, made it all, was more wealthy and wise than anybody else, and here's the conclusion he comes to at the end of life. I've gotten everything, and it's not that which matters. Let's keep going. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hand had done, the labor which I exerted. Behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Verses 17 through 20, he uses it three times. Okay, here we go. Or three or four times. So... Everybody ready for this? Have you had this moment? You see those first four words? Read the first four words. Anybody had a moment like that? Now, I can say it in ways with a couple of words that probably wouldn't be appropriate to a public gathering. Life, fill in the blank, okay? Now, you've had that moment. So I hated life for the work. And somebody said, yep, he just was there with me on Tuesday of this past week, Okay. I mean, you've had that moment where you said that. Here's the good news. You can, those thoughts will come. It is not an imperfect faith for you to have those moments. 
it's an imperfect faith for that thought and those moments to sustain your orientation at the end of it all. Okay, so here we go. I hated life. The work which I had been done under the sun was so grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Thus, I hated all the fruit of my labor. Anybody got a job they don't like to go to? Okay. Uh, I labored under the sun. I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor. What's going to come next? With all that you've done, and what, how are you going to hand it off to the people who come behind you? Therefore, verse 20, I completely despaired of the fruit of my labor, or all that I'm doing, which I had labored. Uh, for the chapter 2, verse 22, for what does a man get in his labor and his striving, which he labors under the sun? Uh, chapter 3, verse 16, I have seen under the sun the place of justice, there is wickedness. Listen, it goes through every aspect of our life. It says, you never know when you work someplace if you're working for a fool or a wise man until it's too late. Anybody ever been there? I mean, you can identify at some point this stuff happens. How many feel better for coming to church already? Okay, yeah, only four of you. Strange people like me, okay. But you, you say, see, the book of Ecclesiastes contains ostensibly this gathering of unquestionably great wisdom, but it is also, by the way, I think that, that Solomon is the originator of the websites demotivators.com. Demotivators.com. How many here have ever seen that site? They make posters, and no one's seen that? That's tragic. I wanted to do a sermon series on posters from that site. They take the cliches, all of the little frosting cliches of life that, um, uh, you know, the early bird catches the worm. Okay, and they flip them on their head, and um, uh, let's see, those. What's one? My, my favorite one. I used to have on my desktop all the time. Those who never try never win, but those who who never win and still try are fools, or something like. It's it's they're they're absolutely thoughts you've had at some moments. They're, they're really not the be-all, end-all, but you need to go there, demotivators.com, because here's the terrible confession. Everyone you read, all of us have thought them at some time. And there are these beautiful posters you can actually buy and, and, and put on the wall where you see all of these motivational motifs. Okay, now, um, here's the verse I actually wanted to start off with. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, the last half of it. I want you to listen. This is a prophetic word defining and describing the life of every human being in East Tennessee. You ready for it? We're going to start. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How many know, if you've never known the meaning of that verse prior to the last three weeks, we've learned it here, okay? And, and you literally, a whole sermon there. I'm moving to get to a point. Um, we look at life and its inequity and wonder, okay, why, why bother? Okay, I'm going to leap to Tom's five rules for surviving life. I'm just going to rattle them off quickly, and then we're going to look at the scripture behind them. We're all going to stand and rejoice and say, I'm not sure I'm glad I came to church today, but we're going to end up there, okay? Look at the person next to you and say, come on, get ready. We're going to go fast, okay? Rule number one I just read and gave you the scripture for it. Rains on everybody. It rains on everybody. Say it out loud with me. It rains on everybody. Now, you can go home and unpack that statement according to Matthew chapter 5, okay, that the context is life happens. 
Please hear me. I am 62 in a couple of weeks, 40 years of studying scripturally faith, scripture faithfully. I am known as this eternal and never-ending optimist because I believe there's God in the mix and we never know what he's about to do next. I don't see the glass half, half empty, but I'm also one that viciously describes the current reality around me because insanity is the failure to do that. If you pretend that there, the reality is something different than it is, now see, there are some of those in what they call extreme faith schools, and I love how they've co-opted the word faith to come to mean their own thing, that if we have faith, we don't ever think anything negative. We don't ever see a potential negative outcome. Paul said, I'm paraphrasing his closing words, about this time tomorrow, I'm going to be guillotined and going to die. How many know that's a negative confession? And, and he would write about all the things that have happened. No, he was a real world faith person. When I talked to Roger Dixon and, and the, the days before he, he passed away, we had a very real conversation about heaven. He said, well, what do you, you do? Do you want to visit a guy in a hospital and talk to him about dying? Yeah. And then prayed for him to be healed because I've seen people healed. I've seen people healed radically and indescribably, in, unexplainably. I've seen people healed. And I'm going to pray for people to be healed. But those of us who passionately believe in that manifestation of the Spirit of God in that expression in the human body where suddenly things are fixed that shouldn't be fixed, I have seen Charts, pictures, tests with arteries totally clogged, and then they're not, and the tests weren't wrong. I've seen pictures and images where cancers have filled the lungs, and then it's gone, and the tests weren't wrong, the images weren't mistaken. They were right. I have seen that. Does it happen enough for me? No, and I remind God of that regularly. But the reality is, I, I think that we do not understand heaven when we fail to talk about it. We see it as the loser's second prize. It is not the loser's second prize. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent from this body is to be in the presence of the Almighty where we are shot through with the penetrating x-rays of his glory and we are all he ever intended for us to be in that moment. It is the closest, we, not the closest, it is the fulfillment of what God attempted to have happen when he created mankind in the Garden of Eden and placed them there in an unadulterated, unviolated sense of innocence where they had daily exposure to him. Beloved, that moment is coming. That time is coming, and it is not one, frankly, that I fear. And I'm not saying that to bravado. I don't want to leave the service and say, man, I'm excited about going to heaven. There's about a 200-foot cliff right back here. Please join me there. We're jumping off of it right after service. I'm not going to line up and get on that cliff. I like life. But I don't like life to the point that I think this is anything other than what David said. It's a breath. It's a breath passing through. We are those who can live life fearlessly because we do not fear what's after it. Like no one else, we have a faith, a grip on our soul that said this is not the be-all, end-all. And by the way, that is the skeptic's conclusion. I should have read to you the closing three verses of Ecclesiastes, but I sort of missed that moment. So go home and read chapter 12, verses 11 through 13, and you're going to say, and he says, here's my conclusion. So that'll be the surprise for you. Go home and read it. Number one rule, it rains on everybody. Number two rule, uh, it really is relative. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through four, in particular, verse four, but go ahead and put that scripture. It really is, everybody say, it really is relative. 
I get in trouble for this verse of scripture at every pastor's round table or a conference I go to when they begin to discuss the realities of life and ministry and how crushing it is to live in a fishbowl, speak every Sunday, have your family exposed to every scrutiny. People come and go. They choose a next church. I recently saw someone in public again who had left the church because they wanted to find a church that was more spiritual than ours and that had more. And, and you can say, I'm not scoffing. I didn't say that for you to go, please. I didn't say that. We live in the Bible belt and here's a fact of life. Like no other place on the planet, people come and go. People come and go. That doesn't mean I'm not going to reach out to you with sincerity and expect to spend lots of years together. But the reality of Ecclesiastes is people are going to come and go. And the awkward notion of it was, is this encounter that I had with these people publicly was just very, very awkward and acted angry. And I thought, I'm not angry. I'm not offended. I'm not hurt. People say things, it comes, it's a reality. So anyways, back at this, I could tell you how I handled that, but that'd be too far of a digression. It's church, you know, and as long as we live in the Bible Belt, I don't think it's the best way of doing it, but you know, rock on. The good news is there are more selections in East Tennessee in Sevier County than Walmart has flavors of anything, okay? So God bless you. That's why I believe in the kingdom. Do I believe you can be blessed at another church? Yes. And there are some people that I have rejoiced have found that blessing. Okay, enough. Enough of that. It really is relative. So here's the verse that gets me in trouble. Because I listen to people and pastors commiserate. And at every pastor's gathering or roundtable, I mean, bad things happen. People are cruel and say ugly things to pastors for, I mean... Just whatever reason. They just say mean stuff. But here's the deal. Mean stuff gets said to everybody in the world every day. That, that's one of the relative things. So I'll sit there sort of quiet, and then they ask me to talk. And they'll say, I'll say, well, I, I, I don't know that today's psychosocial pressure of living in sort of the crock pot, if you will, of pastoral ministry is really to be compared with those who have been martyred, burned at the stake, and eaten by lions. And I said, so what's to say that those who are just honored in Scripture in Hebrews chapter 11, what's to say that we're not walking a similar path when we have this idea that if we sustain faith in reality, we have this bubble around us that insulates us from all pain and reality and strife? Listen to this verse of Scripture from Hebrews chapter 12. Let me see where I stuck this. Um, Let's just go with verse 4 and cut through the first part. Here it is, and I quote this one. For you have not resisted unto the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Can I add, have you? See, here's the deal. When I'm listening to pastors, and they really get angry at that point because, and I say they, many of them will, because I just absolutely took away an excuse for being miserable. You can, hey, here's the good, you can still be miserable. That's the good news. I didn't take it away. You can, you can find lots of reasons to be miserable. But here's the thing, and I've said this, that my childhood adult threshold window 
was the United States Marine Corps. And even more than that, a unit within the United States Marine Corps, Second Force Reconnaissance, it's a special ops unit, and they make you do insanely stupid things. So when you're put in extreme circumstances, presumably you can stand under the psychological pressure and still accomplish the mission and be focused. I mean insanely stupid things of mental and physical endurance. So I'm convinced that 18 to 21-year-old window probably God used in forming that outcome. Uh, and a disposition, because you have to pray for me. The people I need grace for most in life are not drug addicts, not rabid adulterers, sinners, or people that take advantage of others. The people that God has to continually give me grace for are wine bags. Wine bags. That's a confession. Wine bags. Their identity is whining. We whine, 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 whine. And I remind people, you know, well, the church is not perfect. I got to go find a perfect one. Good. Move to China. Look for one there. No, you say, no, I'm not trying to get them far away. That was a real statement. It was go to China and experience what it is to worship in an underground church that if you can find this little enclave or, uh, of believers to hang out with in privacy, enduring that any moment you may be arrested and tortured for celebrating your faith, I believe you'd come back to the Bible Belt with a little different appreciation of the value and purpose of gathering believers so that you can walk and do life together, not so we can walk in with my ecclesiastical shopping cart to pick the little precious things off the shelves of life and add to my unique mix of what is my personal expression of, um, oh, I got it. Um, oh, come on, there's a word that's just out there. I need this word. It's right there of, um, oh, I hate that. It means customized. It's a word we see a lot when they're doing something uniquely for you. But your own little custom faith. Man, I need that word so desperately. I'll have it for you. What? No. No, Wait. I got it. Concierge faith. See, in really nice hotels, you call the concierge. What can I do for you, Mr. Sturbins? I rarely get to stay at those, you know. Motel 6 doesn't have one. The, the, what can I do for you? Well, we were wanting dinner where they serve the finest seafood and in a series of presentation that would most greatly meet my unique culinary appetite. Well, Mr. Sturmans, let me tell you exactly what we have for you. Thank you very much. You have created an experience for me that I believe will be profitable and of which I will write on Yelp. You see, we approach faith like that. I've been saved, and I entered the ecclesiastical supermarket so I can collect my own unique concierge faith expression. It doesn't work like that. Life doesn't work like that. You know, okay, enough said. Each of these need to be a sermon. Okay, Romans chapter 8. First print, everybody say this. Groaning happens. Groaning, say it again. Groaning happens. Oh my. Here are the verses. I, I don't want to read them all to you, but it starts somewhere around verse 22 and goes nonstop through verse 28. You want to hear the 28th verse? Here it comes. For we know that all things work together. For good, for those who are called according to his purpose, to love God. Oh, see, we like that verse, but we don't read the five verses before it. Number one verse says, all creation groans. Well, how long has that been going on? Ever since the last day in Eden. All creation's messed up. I mean, all creation is groaning. And say, what does that mean? We've talked about it and studied it. Two verses later, it says, all mankind, we groan. It's tough. 
Why is it tough? Read the two lists later on. Oh, in like 25 and 37 and 39. It says this. It says, in all, God knows all things work together. And we say, what things? He gives you two lists of things. Nakedness, peril, distress, starving, divorce, geopolitical unrest. And then he goes on and says, if it's not enough on the planet, he says, height, depth, principality, powers, things present, things to come. How many know that's the list of the cosmic groaner's anticipation? Even it's just forces beyond the world. But he says at the end that nothing can separate me from that love of God, the presence of God in Christ Jesus. I just gave away the end of the story. Okay, number four. uh, Well, I just, number four principle is nothing can separate me from his love. These are Tom's guiding principles. At some moment in life, you're going to need them. And I just gave away the end of the story. But the, the real end is this. There is an end and he is it. Some years ago, I shared with you, and I haven't recently, the, some of the closing verses of First Corinthians chapter 16, and there is somewhat of sort of social complexity there, because Paul is closing out a letter, and he's giving sort of this uh, apologetic statement that those of you who don't believe, who, who don't believe God is Jesus Christ is Lord, let them be accursed. And then he adds this word on the end, Maranatha. Maranatha. One of two uh, Aramaic words that he would preserve for that Gentile community. The other one was Abba. It's a great study itself. But only two Aramaic words would he hold over, and it's Maranatha. Listen to me. The word Maranatha, who, know, who knows what it means here? Who, who would know? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord, it's me. Come Lord Jesus. Why? <laughs> I happened to be reading that passage of Scripture. How many years ago? Jordan went home to be with the Lord. Five or six now? How? Ten? Oh, my goodness. Okay. And it was in the early part of the year. Um, uh, our niece had been in a fatal car accident. And uh, she'd been in a fatal car accident, and we jumped in the car at midnight at 1 o'clock in the morning and began a 14-hour drive to Fort Myers, Florida, to be with our family. And we got there just, I, I don't know what time it was. I drove too fast. We got there less than 14 hours, I think. And, uh, but when we did later that day, or that evening or the following morning, it all runs together. Uh, we went to the, to the funeral home you know, where we were all gathered as a family. And her body was covered with a sheet, hadn't been prepared, um, but they hadn't been able to either... I mean, it was, I, don't, I don't even recall that the hospital was involved because she was pronounced dead at the scene. And, and her, um, I'm always sensitive for any family member that might be watching right now. But her body was disfigured. And, and I don't know. I, I knew from having lived in Fort Myers so long, the funeral director, the head one, he came over and said, Hey, Pastor, she's asked to see. She, she really doesn't need it. Trust me. He said, But if she can just, we're going to leave her this part of her hand out from under the sheet and then the top of her head. If you could stay right by her, her being her mother, Lisa, do not let her move that. She doesn't just, I mean, they were very sensitive. And I said, okay. And, but she wanted to see her and touch her. I'd been studying this passage of scripture and really didn't quite get it until <clears throat> until I was standing there in that moment. And she would go, and Lisa 
would go and she'd touch her hand and rub her hand. And she'd bend down and kiss her hand and she would go where the top of her head was out from under the sheet. She would just take her hair and smell it. and She would kiss it. And as you can imagine, it was just the most extreme emotional moment in life. Lisa had been relatively new to faith. I mean, I think she had been in around church. But in the years prior to that, just sort of new to faith and was beginning to grow in Christ. But here's what she kept saying over and over. She didn't talk about Jordan. She didn't talk about her pain. But the thing she was saying, I, I, I stood by the side because I stayed close to react in case whatever she felt might felt felt the need to do that. But here's she said over and over, Jesus, please come. Jesus, please come. Jesus, please come. Hundreds of times, I think. Jesus, please come. As I stood there, there was a gasp in my heart and spirit. I thought, oh, that's what it means. You see, because Paul offers an argument about people who don't understand who Jesus was in God on the planet. And he says, those who deny him that Jesus is Lord, let them be accursed. And then he says, Maranatha. You see, because, beloved, in our life, the highest proclamation of who Jesus is is not a theoretical or theological argument. It is understanding that there is such a significant imprint on our soul that whoever he is and whatever he is, the most important thing is, at the end of it all, it will be him. He is at the end of it all. I noted what a mentor of mine said that we, we have lost seemingly to this generation of worshipers songs that speak definitively about heaven. We write songs about heaven coming here and the glory of the Lord. But it seems that we pushed back the songs that I grew up singing about going there as the be all in there, be all end all. We sing songs and worship songs about the quality of life and faith and they're good. But he said... We are missing our eschatological hymns. What does that mean? I don't know that the soul has made its final destination in dealing with the complexities of life and handling the cynicism that would otherwise be thrust upon us by reason of daily events until we come to the conclusion that, Lord, whatever is the end, you are the end. Whatever heaven, if heaven does not have streets of gold and gates of pearl in the way that I've envisioned them, it doesn't make any difference because what is sure is you are there. The thing we value most in life, I want us to get that. It rains on everybody. It really is relative. Groaning happens. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And at the end of it all, he is the end. I will see him. At the end of it all... And see, those really are, let me go ahead and read that closing verses, and then we'll say amen. I included that. Let me see where I stuck those, if I brought those. Apparently, I didn't include that. He, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Um, Amanda, can you find them? I think it's verses 12 and 13 that, that I left off. Verses 12 and 13, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And here really is the hope and the depth perception of it all, okay? 
that he says at the end of it all, really, um, let me go ahead and read it. I put her on the spot. I sent her about 5,000 verses of scripture this morning. There it is. The conclusion is this, verse 13. When all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. He said at the conclusion of all this, I'm going to trust God and walk with him. The implication is he is at the end of it all. So if you would, we're going to stop right here. Would everyone stand? Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.